Well, thank you, Keith and choir. And uh, Steve, you can go back to sleep now. Everything went fine. I know that you feel better now. Well, today we're going to continue our study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, his, his focus, because this church was so dear to him, so special to him, his interest was that they have joy. That as believers, as Christians, they have joy. As a matter of fact, some 17 times in this letter, he refers to their joy or to rejoicing. So it becomes obvious to us that he was very interested in their joy. Now, it could be that he is addressing some of those things that steal our joy from us. There are, there are things in life that take our joy. For instance, in chapter number 1, he mentions circumstances, and circumstances can take away our joy. Paul mentions in that chapter that he is imprisoned, and uh, certainly that circumstance would cause one not to have the joy that the Lord would otherwise give. It could be today, and I would assume today, that there are some of you facing circumstances in life that take away your joy. So he says that circumstances sometimes takes our joy. In chapter number two, he mentions that people can take our joy. He said, you live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So people sometimes can take our joy. I, I used to have a friend who pastored in Texas, and he said, he said, I, you know, I love souls, I just don't like people. Well, sometimes people make us feel that way. They can take our joy away from us. And I, and I have to confess to you, today when I see so many people who are hostile towards the church and towards the values of Scripture and the things on which this country was built, I sometimes have a hard time not losing my joy because of people. And that's what Paul is saying, that sometimes our circumstances can take away our joy. Sometimes people can take our joy. And then in chapter 3, he says that things can take our joy. And there he is speaking about those things that are so important to us, if we do not have them, then we don't have joy. There are some things I think I have to have and if I don't have those things, then I lose my joy. So it might be that Paul is addressing some of those things. Well, how, how do we get over or how do we have victory over those things that would steal our joy? And Paul tells us, well, you take a long look. In chapter 3, verse 7, he said, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that you have to look beyond your circumstances you have to look past people who will take away your joy. And you have to look beyond those things you feel you just have to have. Take a long look. When my children were learning to drive and I taught them uh, to drive, I, one of the things I said is that look beyond the car that is immediately in front of you. Because if you don't, you're going to run into it. Something will happen. You have to have a long look. Folks, that's true in life. We have to take a long look. Where, where, where does this road lead? Where am I going to end up? And so that's what Paul is saying. He says, first of all, to get over or get past those joy stealers, you have to have a long look. And then secondly, he said, now, don't quit. Don't fold up the tent. He said, press on. 
we don't quit just because there are obstacles in the way. And thirdly, he says, remembering that you are not yet home as a follower of Christ. In chapter 3, verse number 20, he said, For our citizenship is in heaven. Linda and I were talking the other morning about that, and, and uh, she said, You know, maybe that's the way it works. That as time goes by, we become more and more uncomfortable here and have a longing for home. That's what Paul is saying. There are those joy stealers in life. It can be circumstances, it can be people, it can be things. He said, so take a long look, press on, don't give up, understanding that you're not yet home. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off last week, verse number 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and Count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Now, Paul begins in our text by saying, first of all, rejoice in the Lord. Matthew Henry wrote, it is the character and temper of sincere Christians to rejoice in Christ Jesus. So there in verse number one, he said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul is reminding them now of some things of which he had reminded them earlier. In other words, he is preaching to them a sermon that he has preached before. S.M. Lockridge made the statement, if a sermon isn't worth preaching twice, it probably isn't worth preaching once. Now, apparently, Paul believed that. He said, I know that I've already spoken to you about these things, but I want to remind you of them again. There are some things of which we need to be reminded. As followers of Christ, there are some things that we need to constantly be reminded. First of all, our purpose. Why are we here? What does God expect from us? Well, He told us before He left. He gave to us the Great Commission. 
And he said, we are to take the gospel into all the world. So we have been given the Great Commission. He said, you are salt, you are light. You are a preservative in a world that is corrupt. You are light in a world that is dark. So we need to always remember why we're here. We are reminded of his presence. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what Natalie was singing a while ago, I am not alone. My, my friend, do you understand today that the Lord is with you? You say, well, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like the Lord is with me. It's not a matter of feelings. It's His promise. If you're a child of God, He says, I will never leave you. Even to the end of the age. So He is with you. We need to be reminded, especially when we are going through difficult times in our life, that the Lord is present with us. He said that He would never leave us. We need to be reminded of His power that is available to us. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 4. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Sometimes do you feel intimidated by the world? Sometimes do you feel overwhelmed by the circumstances of life? Well, according to what John told us, when a person is saved, when someone is converted, they become a child of God, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell that person. So if you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And that is the reference of John when he said, Greater is he who is within you than he who is of the world. So you have the power that is necessary. Whatever God calls you to do, he gives you the power to do it. So we need to be reminded of the power of God that is available to us. And then we are reminded of his provision. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 19, he said, And my God shall supply all your needs. Aren't you glad? That's the promise of God. My God shall supply all your needs. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is important for you as a Christian believer to know. That God promises to meet our needs. That is also important for we as a church, corporately, that God meets our needs. That's a promise that He has given. So, He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things. It's not a, no problem to me safeguard for you. So he said, I want you to remember some things and as you remember them, what happens? Rejoice in the Lord. When I remember the promises of God, I what? I rejoice in the Lord. Well, the problem is for many people or the challenge for many people is that well, I don't have a great joy in my life. As a Christian, I don't have great joy. And I believe that oftentimes the reason for that is that we fall into legalism. You know? We fall into legalism and that takes from us the joy that is promised by the Lord. You see, legalism, and that's, that's a part of the issue that Paul is dealing with in this book, in this, in this letter. The teachers that had come in and who were teaching legalism to the congregation. So sometimes we fall into legalism which takes away our joy and it takes away our joy because our focus is wrong. When our focus is legalistic, then I am focusing on what I must do rather than on what he has done. Concerning salvation, I I focus on what I must do rather than on his sufficiency of dying on the cross. I have to do these things to gain the favor of God and so... 
we are overwhelmed and intimidated and failures because of a commitment to legalism and we, as a result, lose our joy. Do you want joy in your life? Then, my friend, you have to become a person of grace. If you want joy in your life, then you have to become a person of grace. Boyce wrote, joy is a supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. Joy is an inner quality of delight in God or gladness, and it is meant to spring up within the Christian in a way totally unrelated to the adversities or circumstantial blessings of this life. Paul says, remember the promises of God. And as you remember His promises, then rejoice in the Lord. It brings to you joy. So we live in grace and we mature in the faith. That's what Paul is saying to us here. And then in verse number 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Paul was concerned about those false teachers who had come into the church and were teaching legalism to the congregation. They were teaching that one is saved by grace plus works. That I am saved by the grace of God, by the sacrifice of Christ plus works. I also have to do these works. So what did you notice how Paul described these teachers? Dogs. Well, that probably doesn't resonate with most of us because we don't see our dogs in a negative context. I certainly don't see Blue that way. Now, you know, Blue, I've got this little puppy. He's not little anymore. He's probably 65 pounds. He's growing. He's just a, he's just a puppy, but he's, he's growing. My, my dog, Tex, that I had went to be with the Lord. He was a, he was a Christian dog. I wouldn't say yet that Blue is a Christian. I think he's under conviction. And I think that he's going to get there. But I don't think that he's there yet. So we don't don't think of our dogs in a negative sense. So Paul then is using the term as a metaphor. Vine says the Jews use the term of Gentiles under the idea of ceremonial impurity. Davis Dictionary of the Bible says to call one a dog was a gross insult. The term dog is applied in a figurative sense to those who are incapable of appreciating what is high or holy, who introduce false doctrines. Barnes wrote, the term dog is used to denote a person that is shameless, impudent, malignant, snarling, dissatisfied, and contentious and is evidently so employed here. The reference here is doubtless to Judaizing teachers, so he refers to them as dogs. Then he calls them evil workers. Gromacki wrote, They were working for their own salvation, and they attempted to influence others to accept legalism as an additional requirement with faith, as the grounds for divine acceptance. Now, that's interesting to me. Paul refers to these teachers as evil workers who were teaching that we are saved by grace plus works. He referred to them as evil workers. To me, that is a, that is a pretty strong statement about these people. Now, why would someone say that? 
Why would someone say that someone who teaches that salvation is by grace plus works an evil worker? Why would he say that? Because it holds no regard for the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. It is saying that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient. Therefore, I must supplement what Christ did with my works. And Paul says they are evil workers. Then he mentions false circumcision. You see, for the the Jews, circumcision had become the means of their salvation, so to speak. We understand that. Because I I see in the church oftentimes people think of baptism as the means of salvation. If I ask someone, are you a Christian? I've had people many times say, well, I was baptized and so forth. So rather than it being a picture of salvation, it becomes the means of salvation. That's what was happening to them. So Paul referred to them as the false circumcision. Now, look at verse number 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. He said that we, referring to those who put their faith in Christ, he said we are the true circumcision. Barnes said the real design of circumcision was attained by those who had been led to renounce the flesh and who had devoted themselves to the worship of God. That's what Paul is saying. I have no confidence in the flesh. I have no confidence in what I do. My confidence is in what he does and did. He says we worship in the Spirit. Did you notice that? We are the true circumcision, worship in the Spirit. That that is an issue in the church today. And it is my belief, and I've stated this before, that I don't believe that form is that important in worship. But the Spirit. You remember when Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well? In uh, John chapter 4, verse number 24, Jesus said, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. That's the thing that's important in our worship. Now, I, I was thinking about worship in the Spirit being important to the Lord. I have preached in Russia. And I've seen the women sit in the congregation with their heads covered because that's the form that they worship with. I have preached in Cuba, and I have seen the people, they're very demonstrative as they worship the Lord. That is the form that they use. I don't think the form is the important thing, but the heart. The heart. I don't don't sometimes understand why people get all bent out of shape about the music. Well, I like this music, or I don't like that music, or this is the only kind of music I can worship with. Well, then it's all about you. It isn't about the Lord. See, it is the Spirit. He says we worship in the Spirit. We glory in Christ. It's not about circumcision or rituals or form. It's about Jesus. With no confidence in the flesh. Fanny Crosby wrote, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. But the fact is, we are tempted to put our confidence in the flesh. In verse number 5, he said, circumcised the eighth day. 
The Jews had rituals that they performed that gave them confidence. We also have rituals that give us confidence that we are right with the Lord. Baptism, communion, confirmation. We have our rituals also. So the temptation then is that I put my confidence in the rituals. In race, in verse number 5, he says, I'm a nation of Israel. Paul, why are you a person of God? Because I'm from Israel. He, he could have had confidence in that. I've had people tell me when I've talked to them about their spiritual condition, why are they confident in their position? They say, well, I'm an American. I certainly am a Christian. I'm an American. That's what Paul is saying. That We put our confidence in race. We put our confidence in religion. In verse 5 he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a religious person. Paul was a religious person when he was persecuting the church. In fact, that was the reason that he persecuted the church. He was fulfilling his religion, his understanding of religion. So he was religious even when he was persecuting the church. We put our confidence in rules. He said, I'm a Pharisee. And the Pharisees meticulously kept the rules. Tom Shepard wrote, A Pharisee would not even eat an egg if it were laid on the Sabbath, because they considered that to be work. If he got bit by a mosquito on the Sabbath, he would not scratch, because that was considered work. A Pharisee would not allow a woman to look in a mirror on the Sabbath, because she might see a gray hair and pull it out, and that would be considered work. By the way, I'm glad you ladies looked in the mirror and Cleaned up this morning. You look nice. <laughs> Obviously, you're not a Pharisee, but you know that that was the deal. They kept the rules. We have confidence in our reputation. In, in verse number six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church; as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, Paul had a reputation. He had the reputation of being a, a, a religious person. He had a reputation. It reminds me of a man who belonged to the church that I pastored when I was in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, because he used to be fond of saying to me, well, around town I'm known as Mr. Baptist. He liked that. I didn't particularly like it because I thought, well, you know, you're not a good representative of Mr. Baptist. But at any rate, that, you know, we put our confidence in things of that nature. He says, beware of those who lead you astray. Now in verse number 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul now is leading them to turn away from religion and focus on Jesus. That is, that's what he's doing here. It is a pivot. He's turning away. He mentions all these things that we have a tendency to have confidence in, and now then he is directing their attention to Jesus. You'll notice in verse number 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted it as lost for the sake of Christ. Counted as lost is in the perfect tense. It means counted as nothing and still counts as nothing. Paul says that there are some things that following Jesus cost. There are some things you lose in following Jesus. Reputation. Paul had an outstanding reputation. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He was possibly a member of the Sanhedrin, but he said, it's all rubbish. It's all garbage. When I compare it to Jesus, it's, it's nothing. Following Christ can cost. It can cost heritage. 
Paul was going against his heritage when he became a follower of Christ. You know, if, if you become a serious follower of Christ, it might cost you your heritage. I mean, of all things, the Lord might want you ending up in the Baptist church. I got to tell you, we had on Friday night, we had the Prodigal Clown, Minutemen of Children's Musical, and uh, Art and June Fusco's grandchildren were here from Atlanta. Now, they had a, the stage set up. There was a big top, the tent, and every, the costumes were incredible, and it was a circus atmosphere, you know, with all of that. It's just really beautiful. They just did a great job, Keith. But what was funny is that Art and June's grandchild said, didn't this used to be a church? <laughs> and they said, yeah, it, it is a church. And the grandchild said, and they have clowns in their church? <laughs> Folks, when we follow Jesus, we don't know where, where he's going to lead us. I mean, but it's going to be good wherever he leads us. So Paul says in verse number 7, whatever things were gained to me, he says there are some things that are better on the other side. Now, what did he gain? He said, I lose some things. You will lose some things if you become a follower of Christ. But he says, what you gain is far better. What do you gain? He said, I know Christ. In verse number 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of, of knowing Christ. Verse 10, that I may know Him. Paul wanted to know Jesus. He really wanted to know Him. Not just the history of Jesus, not just about Him. He wanted to know Him in a relationship. You know, it's sort of like getting married. Whenever you're engaged and you're planning to be married, you know about that person. It's not until you become committed that you really get to know that person. See, you know about them, but you don't really know them until you get married. What else do I receive? The righteousness that comes from God in verse number 9. Paul was not relying upon self-righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to his account. He says in verse number 10, the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Paul received power from, from the Lord in his resurrection. The disciples, they fled when Jesus was arrested, but after the resurrection, they had great power, and so do we. The fellowship of his suffering. Paul suffered for Christ. He was shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, followers of Christ, called on to suffer for him. I, I had someone to ask me this week about all of those Christians in the Middle East that are being killed, that are dying. Why is that? What is that? Folks, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't answer a lot of those questions. But I know that the Bible tells us that if we follow Jesus, that a part of it is probably going to be suffering. Uh, we just pray that the Lord gives us the grace and the strength that we need to follow Him, even during those times. And he said, we're conformed to His death. So let me conclude. We rejoice in the Lord. That's what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Nehemiah wrote, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord. And folks, I think that more people would be interested in what we say if they saw us rejoicing in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Understand that there is a cost involved. There are some things that you will lose. But also understand there are some things to be gained when you come to Christ. Towards the end of the 19th century, the Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel awoke to read his own obituary in the newspaper. The obituary read, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before, 
and he died a very rich man. Well, actually, it was his older brother who had died, but the account had a profound effect on Nobel. So he initiated the Nobel Prize that was to be given to scientists and writers who foster peace. Nobel said every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. And that's what Jesus does for us. He allows us to be different as we put our faith in him. Do you know Jesus? Will it cost? Yep. Is it worth it? Yep. Do you know Jesus? If not, it is my prayer that today you would commit your life to him. Our gracious Father and God, we thank you.